Well, good morning. Welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It's great to see you. Just take a moment, look at your neighbor and say, you look good today. Some of you really were into that. That's good. You look good. You kind of hold that O out. Little Barry White, you look good. I can't go that deep. Anyhow, it's good to see you. You look good today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah 29. I'm going to get there in just a minute, Jeremiah 29. And I want to just say again, thank you for your incredible faithfulness to God's house. Thank you for your incredible generosity. Matter of fact, Upward Sports at the Brookfield campus, uh, it's uh, because of your generosity and your giving and what you're doing, we were able to, not only when that became a campus, but we were able to totally redo the gym. Uh, It was an old, like, school tile, like 12 by 12, like a, a VCT type of a tile, like you'd had in your elementary school floor. I went in to put a complete uh, floor in there and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, there's some cool stuff. There are NBA athletes that actually will rent that gym out to use that with trainers and coaches because gym space is so difficult. And uh, I always tell, I have buddies of mine that are trying to get tickets for me from the Bucks right now. And, and I'm like, you know, Giannis is in a Bible study with me, but I, I can't get those. And <laughs> Some of you are wondering, is that really the case? I can't tell you, but anyhow, <laughs> some things just need to leave right there. But uh, anyhow, but seriously, in all seriousness, it's pretty cool, not just some of the local stuff that we get to do, but that gym being what it is. If you ever get a chance to just a drop by, right now Calhoun is kind of ripped up because they're widening it to four lanes. But it's pretty amazing, and uh, we really are going to use that. You know, outreach in Milwaukee in the inner city looks different than outreach in the suburbs. And so outreach in the suburbs is reaching out to kids and families and so forth. You know that. You live your life in all these crazy worlds. And, and thank God I'm on that empty nest side of it. So, but I've been there, done that. And, uh, and so, uh, but to do that, to be able to have that, we're, it's just an, an outreach opportunity. And that, along with anything else, if you ever know of a kid that wants to be a part of something that we're doing and money is an issue, just let us know. Um, one of the things that we won't do is we won't let money become an issue when it comes to kids. Whether it's camps, whether it's going on a mission trip, we'll figure that out, or whether it's doing something like upward sports. That's never going to be an issue as long as, as, long as I'm the pastor and, and we're continuing in this direction. Uh, that's just not the heart of this church. And so we want to reach people. We want to help people. So, again, I'm real super excited about that. And then there will be a winter league that will really be kicking off uh, in February. And so, uh, again... Thank you for your generosity because you're giving. We're able to do that, and so go by and see that and uh, check that out and um, all that good stuff. Today I want to I I do a message at the beginning of this series. I'm going to be a little tethered to my notes because I want to make sure that what I'm saying is uh, that, I just, that I don't go off script. Not because of time, but because of content. This is not exhaustive, but this is, um, this is my heart. Uh, this is something that God's been processing in me for quite some time. I'm not resigning, so don't think, oh, what's he fixing to do here? It's not anything a kind of a deal. Uh, quite to the opposite. I'm kind of in one of those burn the ships, cut the sails, this is it, you know, uh, <laughs> buckle up, here we go uh, kind of moments. But, but um, and this is not COVID-related at all either. I, I'm not, that's, that, that didn't affect me in that way. What happened, though, is in the spring of this past year, I came across a couple of studies that actually started populating online, populating in newspapers, and then actually a couple of journals that I subscribe to, which are secular. They're not Christian at all. They're very liberal, quite frankly. 
And, uh, and I was just reading, and this data began to, to pop up. And, uh, and, and this became the impetus of what are we doing as a church, big C, and how do we, small c, part of the community of believers worldwide, Life Church, what are we doing? And what, with me being the senior leader that's responsible unto you and ultimately accountable to the Lord, how are we leading? So I want you to hear my heart today. It's going to be biblical, but I want you to hear my heart. And, and I, want you to, I want this to marinate because this really, I think, is where God is leading me. I think this is also where God is leading um, the church. I have never in 20 years read a message before a board, our elder board, before I preached it, ever. But this was one of those things I wanted to make sure that they knew my heart. And when I preached it before you, it was they were 100% behind it. And it's because of the content about what you're going to understand as I go through this. And so, again, this past spring in 2021, Gallup released a poll that said that churches and religious attendance in the United States had reached an all-time low since 1938 when Gallup first began taking surveys. Religious and church attendance in the United States, this has nothing to do with the pandemic, is that 47% of Americans attend a religious service once a week. That includes mosques, synagogues, Protestants, Catholics, any religious activity. These aren't all Christian. This is down 23% in the last 20 years. So in essence, in the amount of time I've been senior pastoring as a senior leader, the church in America has decreased by 23%. According to Barna and the Barna Report, which is another statistical uh, data gathering information, nearly half of Christian millennials think that, that it's quote unquote wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. In contrast, 27%, only 27% of Gen Xers, that'd be my generation, believes that. 19% of boomers, that'd be my parents' generation. 20% of elders, uh, that's that World War II, that, that great generation, are hesitant to talk about their faith in Jesus with non-Christians. The issue isn't that millennials don't feel equipped to share their faith. 86% of millennials said if someone raises questions about their faith, they know how to respond. But evangelism today has received a bad reputation in American society. This is great commission. Jesus told us to do two things. Love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Serve our neighbors ourselves. Love our neighbors ourselves. And to go as a church of Jesus Christ, to go into all the world and what? Preach and teach the gospel. Making disciples, not of, of any faith, but of faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one way to get to the Father, but through the Son. 86% of millennials that believe in Jesus Christ. This isn't beating up on millennials. This is, a, this is kind of a pulse of where we are in our world. Think that it's wrong or they feel uncomfortable to share their faith, to actually fulfill the Great Commission. At alarming rates, we a church face an embrace, we, a ch we face a church, big C, that's embracing, affirming, and ignoring sin. By sin, I mean opposition to God's worth, only to fit the contemporary narrative of our world. Even in some pulpits, now embracing a secular view of what's called antinomianism, which in essence deems God's word as useful for the Christian walk, but God's word is not foundational. Therefore, you get to pick and choose what you will and won't believe and do what seems right into your own eyes. All of this has alarmed me in a way that I personally have not sensed in my own life in decades. Over the last several months, I've sought counsel from several leaders and elders in my life. I 
flew to Arizona and spent a day with Pastor Barnett. I have shared my heart in today's message with the Life Church board. Today's message in no means is exhaustive, but it's representative of where I believe God is leading me and where I believe God is leading us. Today, I want you to hear this. I'm not fearful of the world or fearful of the future. I'm not depressed or not wanting to retreat. Instead, I believe that we, you and I, are here in this time for this purpose and for this reason. Now, time, according to Scripture, is divided into two words, chronos and kairos. Chronos time is time like, hey, it's 9.35. Kairos time is a moment or a season. Today's chronos time, we are in a kairos moment. The contest for moral righteousness in our world and in America is at stake. In the public square, there's a call for moral clarity. This isn't new. We see this in the Old Testament. Prophets like Jeremiah, uh, leaders like Nehemiah, leaders like Joseph and Daniel, all of which rose up in opposition in a very pagan and sinful world, in a world that was post-Christian, anti-Jehovah, anti-God, anti-Christ. So if you have your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 29, the Bible speaks to this and how this affects us. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 4, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts and the God of Israel to all the exiles of whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jerusalem is leaving, Israel is leaving exile into Babylon, which was the most pagan culture of the day. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease. In this pagan world, do not pull back, do not let up, do not shut up, do not shrink, do not decrease. Look at verse 7. This is the operative, uh, the operative key uh, verse in this passage. But seek the welfare of the city for where I sent you into exile. And pray that the Lord on its behalf and for its welfare you will find your own welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie and they are prophesying to you in my name. Again, false prophets, preachers, ministers that are preaching to itching ears in essence. I did not descend them, declares the Lord. Look at verse 10. For thus the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise. And bring you back from this place, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your hearts, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather from you all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, I understand this is Old Testament, this is a prophecy that Jeremiah gives to the nation of Israel. I also understand when I go to the New Testament, the New Covenant of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the book of Galatians says that you and I as Gentiles, as followers of Jesus Christ, have been grafted into the vine. Therefore, every promise in the book is ours. I understand this is historically speaking specifically to the nation of Israel. I get that. But in principle, it's also speaking to you and I that wherever we go, if we'll keep our eyes upon the Lord, if we'll keep our hearts upon the Lord, if we won't listen to people who are false prophets in essence, people that deviate from God's word, if we'll keep our eyes on the Lord and we'll do what he tells us to do, he will in turn, when we seek him, we will find him. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He will produce the promises of his word in our life. 
That's the contextual, uh, contemporary, uh, applied significance to, to this passage in Jeremiah. Go back to verse number 7. But seek the welfare of the city from which I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The word seek means to aim or desire or demand. To aim or desire or demand. So aim or desire or demand the welfare of the city I've sent you into. The word welfare isn't the same word that you and I have for welfare. Welfare means peace, stability, and wholeness. Peace, stability, and wholeness. A paraphrase using those two definitions says, You should much desire and demand peace, stability, and wholeness to the city in which I have sent you. Therefore, your welfare, your peace as a, as a citizen, your stability, your wholeness is directly connected to the city or nation in which you are living in. Not your eternity. We're not talking about the sweet by and by. We're talking about the here and the now. Your ability to be free is directly connected to the city and the nation in which you reside, according to this passage. Now, somebody may go, well, I don't know. I think you're kind of overstating this, and we're going to kind of blow into kind of a God bless America moment, right? America, amen? No A, just America, right? And to that, I would say, let me just stop for just a moment. Let you go with me to communist, suppressed, socialist governments around the world, and you talk to the Christians that live there. And you ask them if their relationship with Jesus Christ, their ability to live out, this book isn't impeded or isn't protected or promoted or impaired by where they live in the nation in which they live in. Go with me to Cuba. I've been to Cuba numerous times. I I've been on my first time into Cuba. I was brought in and I was interrogated and, 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 and I did not know if they were going to let me into the country. Why? Because the number of Bibles that I had on me. And every time I spoke, I was told, and every time I've spoken, there's going to be government informants that are there. You need to be careful what you say because they're not going to abuse you. They will take care of the pastor and the preachers and the ministers that are there and the, and the people that are in that congregation. And by congregation, it's basically like a double-wide carport. See, this stuff doesn't hit the news. This stuff doesn't hit some documentary that some liberal media host is, is bringing up. Let me take you to Vietnam, in Saigon, where they have church on Sunday morning at the second story of the Ford dealership because no one's there and everything's shut down. And that's the only time during the week to the top of their lungs, and I'm telling you it's louder than an Ozzy Osbourne concert, and to the top of their lungs they are praising God and going after it. And yet some of us sit here and go, well, I just I don't really know if I feel like raising my hands or even showing up at church. or do I, we have to sing it that loud? The one hour a week that they get ask them if their ability to live out God's word is not directly connected to the nation to the city in which they are in I'm telling you communism socialism and any type of anti-christ anti-democratic style of government does everything that it can to impede against this book I'm just telling you only someone who lives in a free society has a luxury of stating that government does not matter let me state that again. You can tweet this out if you'd like to. Only someone who lives, I need to roll my RPMs down, I can feel it. <laughs> Only someone who lives in a free society has the luxury of stating that government doesn't matter. Yeah, right. what, what are you saying? Should our focus be on government and politics? No, 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 no. Government politics are not going to change us, not going to save us. The most important decision you will ever make in your life is a decision to follow Jesus and make him Lord and Savior. Period. But the second most important decision that you will make in your life is the ability and the freedom to do number one.
which is to follow Jesus. That's what I am saying. In the United States, religious liberties for Christ followers are closing in. This is what's happening. We have what we call a fallback. This is a natural human state. We in humanity, we take for granted the blessings and the prosperity of God on our lives and the country in which we live in. It's a default of humanity. We, we, we get up, God blesses us, we do well, we forget about God, and we kind of fall back. We see this Old Testament, New Testament. I believe we're in a season, a kairos moment, where we have become lax and fallen back, and it's time for us to awaken and to arise. Why do I speak to you, the church, and not to legislature or government? And trust me, I've thought about running for office more times than you can count. I've thought about leaving to get my Juris Doctorate and going, I will do something about this. I am sick and tired because, again, I believe in God's Word, and I believe in His church, and I believe the most important thing that we can do is a relationship with Jesus Christ. But I'm speaking to you and not legislature and government today because you you, the church, are the last great firewall of this great nation. If you fall, if you surrender, if you sit down and shut up, it is over. I believe it's time for the bride of Christ or the church of Jesus Christ to rise up again. I believe this arising and this awakening due to moral decay and unrest in our country is not new. There have been four great awakenings in this country in our history. About every 70 years, there's a great awakening. Now, if you notice in the passage of Jeremiah, God says in 70 years, I will come and I will bring you back. There's a significance. There's a rhythm to that. It's not just by accident. I don't have time to get in the theological weeds on all of that. But in our own country's history, that's exactly what we've experienced. Every 70 years, there's a national societal crisis or shift followed by a spiritual response. Therefore, the church is brought into the conversation. These awakenings are more than religious revivals. It's a firewall, the backstop against America crumbling. Let me explain this. The first great awakening, the national societal crisis and shift was a freedom from tyranny from England. The spiritual response was in the 1740s and the 1760s. Preachers like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and John Wesley, they preached a message of freedom through Jesus Christ and not through a king. Literacy rates increased for the very first time in history because of salvation and Bible reading. This led to the founding of this country to have freedom. The result, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, the United States formed by Christians, not by deists or atheists, contrary to popular opinion. Half of the signers of the Declaration of Independence studied divinity in college. Three, all but three, were Bible-believing, church-attending, Sunday-go-to-church Christians. God is mentioned four times in the Declaration. The fact that God is the most important and not the king is a uniquely American ideal that had never seen its face since that time. Amen. America is a moral good for the world. That happened in the first great awakening. Hold on, baby. We're going to the second one. In the 1920s, our country was marked now by drunken, self-indulgent debauchery. We fall back. We do good. God blesses. We get lax. We fall back. Again, it's the Old Testament. God blesses Israel. They do good. And they reject God. Repeat. It, it's, it's this process of humanity. But God raised up men like Charles Finney, which led to the confrontation of the ills of society, of the sin of slavery, resulting in the Civil War, which leads us to the Third Great Awakening in the 1890s. There's this new worldview of freedom of all men and women, of black and of white, which ushered in a deepening desire to know and experience God. It raised up evangelists like D.L. Moody from Chicago and William J. Seymour. This resulted in the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, California in 1901, which was led by a black evangelist, William J. Seymour. Azusa Street ushered in the largest evangelism effort in human history, and it resulted in world missions as we know it today. 
Fourth Great Awakening, the 50s and the 60s, communism was beginning to sweep our world and trying to sweep this country, and God yet rose up another individual in his church, Billy Graham. Give your life to God, he said. Don't give your life to utopian socialism. He framed the Cold War as a moral conflict between evil versus good, godless communism versus God-fearing America. He said, and I quote, I believe the battle is between communism and Christianity. Quote, I believe the only way that we're going to win the battle for America is for America to turn back to God and back to Christ and back to the Bible. At this hour, we need revival. And we beat communism without ever firing a shot. Ronald Reagan made it a theological debate when he said, quote, America is going to win because America understands that God is in charge and Joseph Stalin is not. Every single time our nation has faced a fallback crisis, every time God has used the church, his church, to step up and to lead the way. It's been 70 years since the last great awakening. In the last 70 years, the church has grown by budgets and baptisms and buildings, but the public square is in decay. And some will say this doesn't matter because we're like every other nation. Some will say it's not our role as the church. Some will say we're only to be about the gospel. But the problem is if America falls, it will be a dark day for the gospel around the world. I'm telling you, if you look statistically at the data, just the raw data, the amount of money that is given by America, not just for humanitarian efforts, but for gospel compassion efforts and for the sending of missionaries and planting of churches and raising up the gospel message around the world, we are in the 90th percentile of all the money that's sent for world evangelization and missions. Do you realize that? There is no other country on the face of the planet that may not be as wealthy as we are, but there's no one that is more philanthropic and more charitable and more giving than this country. And inside this country, there is no group of people, this is statistically proven over and over and over, that gives more dollars, gives more percentage, gives more money than the church. Not just because you're giving it to the local church, but around the corner and around the world. And if we become a post-Christian nation, if we don't stand up in this hour, it won't just affect us. It won't just affect your kids and your grandkids. It will affect a world that is in need of Jesus Christ. If you, brothers and sisters, fail, we as a world fails. Psalm 33, verse 12 says, Blessed the nation whose God is the Lord, the people from whom he has chosen as his heritage. I'm going to slow down so that they can catch up with me. All right. Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I believe that God is calling his church to stand in the gap for righteousness. I believe God is calling his church to stand in the gap for holiness. I believe God is calling his church to stand in the gap for purity. I believe God is calling his church in this nation to, call, to stand in the gap for moral clarity. On the basis of God's word, not in the judgment of mankind, but to speak truth and grace. But brothers and sisters, there cannot be grace unless there is truth. Doesn't exist. Grace is not needed if there is no truth, but grace is needed when there is truth. The truth is that you and I are sinners in need of a savior, but the grace is that God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that if we just believe in him, we will be saved. We speak truth, so we've gotta go to the public square and to live and proclaim the gospel. So what does this mean for us? This is what it means. It means that this begins with us in here, not out there. I want you to hear me. 
The change that I'm talking about is not something out there. It's something in here. It's not them against us or us against them. We don't wrestle, the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 6, against flesh and blood. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, our, our brothers and sisters outside the church are not the problem. The problem is we've got a, a, an adversary, Satan, going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, that's doing everything he can to wreak havoc on the church and upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and that message getting out. But how many of you know Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So therefore, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm not fighting you. I'm not fighting an agenda out there. I'm not fighting an initiative out there. I'm not fighting Wall Street. I'm not fighting the Capitol. I'm not fighting the, the State House or the White House. I, my, my fight is not there. My fight, first of all, begins with me. Begins with me. Because the problem is is that we've become lax. We've become passe. We've kind of just let things go. We kind of go and do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and how we want to do it. And, and every single time that we see God move, the church, you, me, first of all, we deal with us, and then God uses us to change our world. So I'm asking you to, in this season, this Kairos moment, to do the following. First of all, to recommit yourself to prayer to recommit yourself to prayer. How passionately are you praying for our country? How passionate are you praying for lost people that may, you may work with or that you live around or that you, how passionate are you praying when you see that somebody was just shot and killed last night within a handful of blocks of the Milwaukee campus? How passionate are you praying? I, but I, I can't change that and I can't, no, no, but prayer changes things, amen? Again, we go right back to what he said in Jeremiah. When you seek me, you will find me. <laughs> when you go after me, you will find me. Prayer. This is not a physical battle, folks. If it was a physical battle, then let's take to the streets. This is not a political issue. Therefore, we could just protest. No, no. This is a spiritual issue. How do you fight spiritual issues? Spiritually. Spiritual warfare. It would be much easier for us to fight a physical battle because we see the adversary. But the truth of the matter is, is that it's a spiritual issue. Therefore, we began with prayer, prayer for ourselves, prayer for our, our, our families, prayer for our church, prayer for the church, prayer for what God wants to do, prayer for our nation, prayer for our cities, prayer for our counties, prayer for our state. We began to pray intently and intensely. It's called intercession where we pray until we cannot pray anymore. We pray until our voice goes hoarse. We pray until one of those great men, John Wesley, if you go to, to where he, he lives and resided in, in, in England, I've been there at the church and, and the small room in which he lived in, there, there, there are hollowed out places in the floor where his knees were, were on that wood floor for so many hours travailing and praying in prayer. That's what changes the world. That's what changes the world. But that's hard work. And if that was easy to do, everybody would do it. But the problem is we like to say we'll pray, but do we really pray? Because prayer changes us first. You cannot get alone with the Lord and it not change you. It changes us first. Then it begins to change our family. Then it begins to change our city. Then it begins to change our state. Then it begins to change our nation. Then it changes our world. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I 
hear from heaven and heal their land. This is a spiritual issue. Second thing is to recommit to God's word. Recommit to God's word. Look, <laughs> this word, this Bible is under attack like never before. I, I feel like, I feel so old school. I'm telling you, I told somebody the other day, I'm gonna get a double knit polyester suit and start holding crusades, man. I mean, I feel like, I feel like I'm my grandfather. Like I should wear some wingtips and a big wide tie, you know? But I've never seen it where even churches are going soft on what this Bible says. Again, I don't get editorial privilege. You don't get editorial privilege. We don't. And are there parts of it that you don't, I don't like? Yes. There's parts of it that can completely convict me. There are parts of it that completely, utterly, I have to stay on my face before God because I'm a human just like you. And all of us have issues. All of us have sin, depravity. All of us have things. But we got to go back. I'm sorry. I'm, this is the standard. This is what I'm, I'm trying to hide this word in my heart that I might not sin against God. It's not just a good book. It is God's word. It is infallible. It is inspired, it is inerrant, it's infallible, which means it cannot fail. When, when we read that God will do, God will do. When we read that God says he will do this, then he will do that every single time without fail, regardless of my experience. I go right back to this book, right back to this word, right back to trust in this. It's inspired, which means these are God's word that God inspired men to write these words. And some people go, well, and again, I'm getting the theological weeds on you and all, at the, but at the end of the day, the bottom line is, is that we believe that God inspired men to write his words words. And listen, if God can produce a virgin birth, I don't have any problem. I don't have any problem understanding the inspiration of scripture. A virgin birth is much more hard to understand and to explain. And probably quite frankly, if it happened today to, 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 to believe then God has the ability to do this. If God can create the heavens and the earth, he can inspire this book. And it's inerrant, which means it has no error. I understand there are translations and transliterations and Gutenberg's translation da, 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 and all this. I get all of that. But the essence of this, I still too believe that if God can do what we all believe he can do through the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and Jesus can live a sinless life and he can die on the cross for our sins, I think God has the ability to make sure that this book stands true without error through time. You may go that simple. Yeah, it is. Because again, you and I are finite human beings that can't completely understand a finite, an infinite God. Are you reading this book? That's what's going to change you. That's the reason why we promote soap. Why we promote Bible reading and prayer is not to keep you in church, it's to keep you saved. Can I just help you with this? I'm going to heaven. I, I want you to be there. I'm not doing this because I have no other choices in my life to do. I'm doing this because what God called me to do. But I'm telling you, if you don't spend time in prayer and you don't spend time in his word, you will walk away from this just as easily. You won't be able to teach and train your kids and your grandkids. How do you know this? People go, man, you spout out scripture. I mean, do they teach you that Bible college? No, I learned that. At growing up in a Christian home, I saw my dad read the Bible over. He had this brown, still has it, this brown Thompson Chain reference Bible that Glenn Davis gave to him, his Sunday school teacher. Third thing is the fellowship of the church. Recommit ourselves. 
to the fellowship of the church. If you watch this message online, I will say all of this. Online is a great substitute. Excuse me, is a great compliment, but it's not a substitute for coming together. Being online, watching online is a great compliment to your walk with Christ, but it's not a substitute. There are people that are unable to come to Life Church because they are bedridden or they are confounded by the, they're, they're, they're limited to their home or whatever. There's one individual that, a uh, member at Life Church that we found out did not have Wi-Fi, so they weren't able to watch online when COVID hit. So every week there's a DVD of the weekend service that's put in a pick and save plastic bag that's taken to their house and just put on the front door and knocked and we wave and, and just let, make sure he's got it so he gets to watch the service. And if you know anyone that's in that situation, you let me know, we'll make sure that, that this opportunity to be able to fellowship together, at least virtually, will be available to them. But we gotta commit to being in church. And not for you and me. But if we don't do this, what kind of church are our kids gonna have? What kind of church is your grandkids gonna have? Well, I don't need, I'm, I'm, I got it. You, you got it all worked out and all figured out and you're going to heaven. But what about your kids? When they get raised up and they start having marital problems, what, what, where's it gonna be to go? What, 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 what about your grandkids? See, the problem is, 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 again, I'm all for technology, and I'm all for leveraging technology, and I'm all for online. I have no problem with that. We've been doing online services way before COVID ever began, like a decade before. But the truth of the matter is it's a supplement. It's not a substitute. And when we make online a substitute, and I said this in the online message, you need to get your butt back in church. I don't know how it's clear to say it. I can probably make it more clear than that, but I, I would loosen people on it. We need each other. I need you. You need me. And, and, and I don't need you because I'm the pastor. And yeah, when more people are showing up, and they're giving more money and he's making more money. No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with we need to be a strong church. We need to be a not just a smaller, lower KC, but large KC. We, we need to be in every community, in every place, in every location. It's about, it's about committing ourselves to the fellowship of the church and of one another. We need each other. And in this hour, we don't need to let that tear us apart or disintegrate us. Instead, we need to come together. We need to be together. We need, we need to be meeting together as much as we possibly can. And I'm not saying don't go on vacation. I'm not saying don't go to the lake. I'm not saying don't go to the beach. I'm not saying any of that stuff. But, but you know what I'm saying. The times you go, I just don't feel like it. I have those days and I'm preaching. I get it. It's just busy. I get it. Kids are going everywhere. I get it. I got to work. I get it. But at some point, you got to make this a priority. And what I'm saying is if we want to see God do something in our world, in our nation, and we want to see a change, and we're concerned about it, don't just go to the polls. Don't just stand up and, and, and put a sign in your yard. Show up at church. Be involved. Be connected and be committed. Let me go beyond that. Right now, we need people that will not just come to church, but that will volunteer. I told Lisa Barney, uh, uh, who's sitting right here on the second row, didn't mean to point you out right there, but there you are. And uh, I told her at a staff meeting this week, because she oversees element, uh, early childhood for, for, for life kids. If you don't have enough workers in August, I will literally go and do my entire sermon from, uh, I will serve in the nursery until, and, because again, I think some of this is babysitting, because I think, I really do believe this, 
Like I'm babysitting you. Because where we know statistically where kids raise, are raised up in their faith that begins in this in early, in element, excuse me, early childhood and elementary and middle school and high school. That's the most formative years of their life. If we get them connected to Jesus and in love with Jesus and reiterate the values that you're teaching them at home at those ages, when they're old, they'll not depart from it. That's what the Bible says. So the most important place in this building is not in this room. It's right over here in early childhood, then over there in elementary, and then a youth on Wednesday nights or Monday nights or whatever night that, that, that your campus meets. That's what the most important is. So I told Lisa, I'll, I'll do that, and you can hold me to it. I have threatened to do that for 20 years, and I, I promise. And some of you will be like, oh, pastor's in there. I'll change poopy diapers. I'll do it all. And that won't be right. Somebody will have to correct it when I get done with it. But I have no, I have no sense of smell, folks. I was born that way. So Pasadena or Calcutta, it all smells the same to me. Okay. <laughs> Last thing, and I got to land this plane. I'm way over time. Sorry, Ryan. The fourth thing we've got to recommit ourselves to is to love our world. To love our world. And this is what I mean by this. I see all these goofy bumper stickers and sayings, and I'm filtering so much right now, you have no idea. <laughs> love is love, and can't we all get along? And, and Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, let me help you. There's two types of churches right now in the United States. B basically. So you go back to, the, to the, the, the message, the parable that Jesus teach about the, the sheep, the 99, and the one. That the shepherd would leave the 99 and go to the one. So you have churches that are all about the 99. They're all about just, they don't even worry about the one. They're just all about the 99. And they're a mile deep, uh, but they're about an inch wide. I mean, they're really deep and really great, and blah, 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 but they have no influence or effect because they don't ever go into the world. They're a bunch of, it's a holy huddle, kind of a kumbaya deal. That's not what God called us to be. Then you have churches that are all about the one. And again, they're a mile wide, but they're only an inch deep. And the problem with that is, is that they're so busy trying to form a narrative to reach the one that they forget that unless someone's drawn up by the Holy Spirit, people don't come to repentance. See, my preaching cannot draw you. My service cannot draw you. A building cannot draw you. What draws someone to a relationship with Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit. John chapter 15, Jesus talks about this. That the Holy Spirit will be the comforter and the convictor. He'll be the one that will lead us into all truth and always point to Christ, who is the gospel message. And you got churches that are doing, you know, I say we'll do anything short of sin to win somebody to Jesus, and I still believe that. But you got churches that will cross the line of sin. They will degradate scripture. They will pull back on, well, maybe this isn't wrong, and maybe this isn't right, and maybe this, no, I didn't, no, you can't do that. It's, and so what I want to propose to you is something we've always tried here at Life Church. It's not an either or, it's a both and. This is not a tension that we're ever going to solve. It's a tension we're always going to have to manage. We're going to be about both, the 99 and the one. How do you do that? That's what Jesus said. So when this good shepherd leaves the 99, he makes sure that they're safe. He makes sure that they're fed. He makes sure that they're taken care of. And then he goes after the one. And when he goes after the one, he doesn't stop until he finds him. But what does he do? He brings the one back into the 99. That's what we're called to do. How does that happen? By us loving our world. 
So I'm not calling us to a message of an us against them. That's the wrong thing. Again, I grew up in legalistic church and legalism is very comfortable because it tells you what to believe. The problem is, is it falls so short because it can't be because it's man's rules. The, the truth of the matter is, is that we have to love our neighbors. We love ourselves, but me loving you doesn't mean I agree with your behavior. Me loving you does not believe I'm affirming your actions. Me loving you doesn't mean that your truth is different than my truth. No, there is a truth and his name is Jesus. There is the truth and it's God's word. And so it's not about my truth or your truth. It's not relative. It's not, it's not this this ideology that just says, well, whatever you want to do is just right. No, it's called sin, and I didn't write the book. But I'm going to give you the same grace that God gave me. And that is why yet I was a sinner. That's what Christ died for me. So it's not about my righteousness. It's not about my strength. It's not about me. It's about him. And I just want to be one beggar to another beggar where to find food. So today I want to pray for us. And I just want to pray that, again, I have spilled my guts as vulnerable and as open as I know how to. Some of you may go, that's not exhaustive. No, there's a whole lot more. But this is what I believe. This summer, I'm going to be coming back and enlisting a thousand prayer partners at all of our campuses, people that are willing to stand in the gap and to pray. You're going to have an opportunity to be a part of that. This fall... I believe that God's calling us to a concerted time of prayer. And we're going to have just an old school revival for a week at all of our campuses. And we're walking through what that looks like and getting all that put together. Because I just believe we need to have a time where this week is a spiritual saturation. Where it's not about reaching people. It's about us getting, coming before the Lord and asking God to search our hearts and to cleanse our hearts, getting our hearts right, repenting of our own sin and our own stuff, and making sure that our heart is right and ready for God, what God wants to do in our world and our culture. I believe that you and I are called to stand in the gap, and I believe that this is the time for yet another great awakening that God wants to do in this country. Father, I just thank you today for your word. I thank you, Lord, Lord for your people. This is your church, it's not my church. All I am responsible to do is to lead and to preach your word as you speak to my heart. And I'll leave you with the results. My responsibility is not to, to be judge or jury, but rather just to simply be a messenger. So today I pray as I preached your word, I leave it here. God, as I have, have put myself out here, I, I leave it here. Lord, these are your people. They're not mine. I'm not a king. I don't have people. You are the king. You only have people. We are your people, God, and we're here for your glory and not for any man's glory. But I pray, oh God, I pray, Holy Spirit, convict us like you've never convicted us before. Sweep over our souls like you've never swept over our souls before. Bring us to a righteous place before you, not in of ourselves like never before. Let our lives be conformed to your word. I pray as we read your word, God, speak to us and show us areas where we're not living up to the standard of scripture, where we're not living to the place that we need to, that we're not striving at the place that we need to. I pray, Lord, let us, God, for our families, for our marriages, for for our kids, for our grandkids, I just pray, oh Lord, your word says when we teach and train them, Deuteronomy,
Deuteronomy says. Your word, as we rise up in the morning, as we go along the day, as we get at home at night, and as we go to bed, if we will do that, when our children are old, they'll not depart from it. I stand on your word for every mom and dad that has a prodigal right now. I stand on your word, believing, Lord, that you will do that. God, as we stand on your word, as we spend time in prayer, Lord, as we love what you love, which is the bride of Christ, the church, God, as we commit ourselves to that, I just pray, let us make a commitment to, to be here, to be a part, to serve, to help Lisa. Not just to help Lisa, but, 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 but to serve these children and to serve this next generation and to serve under Lisa's leadership and early childhood and an elementary and a youth ministry. God, to, to give ourselves to the next generation. Lord, let us get up off of our backsides and do something. And don't allow a consumeristic mindset to overtake us that just keeps us where it's about me and I and me and mine. But oh Lord, let our heart break for our world that's around us. Let us, just as you did, Jesus, as you looked over Jerusalem and you wept and you said, I wish, just like a mother hen would gather her chicks, that they would allow me, that this city would allow me to put my wings around them, to put my arms around them and bring them home. Oh God, let the Father heart of God reside in us, not willing that any should perish. It doesn't matter who they are or where they've been or what they've said or what they identify as or whatever. You love us and you've called us to come to accordance to your word, to come in right relationship with you. God, I pray let the Father's house, let it be open. God, let this place be a place of prayer. God, let your revival, your great awakening overtake us in a way. Let it go beyond lip service, God, and let it result in how we live our lives. Let it go beyond with what we say and let it result in how we pray. Let it go beyond how we, how we, how, how we, how we do our business. Oh, God, let it infiltrate every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.